0: Please take your Bibles and turn in them with me to the Old Testament first, to 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 10. It's found on page 365 in the Pew Bibles. We'll read verses 10 through 21 and then 54 through 61. We'll also read from the New Testament. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1st and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2nd Kings, then Chronicles. Parts that give history of the nation of Israel, of the church, during the time of the kings. 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 10. People of God, hear now God's holy word. And when the priests came out of the holy place... A cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David. To be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Moving down to verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments as at this day. Let us turn in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. It's found on page 1282. Philemon, Hebrews, James, Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. As far as the reading of God's holy word. Congregation, it's exciting. Many of us know in a couple Moves into their first house. Perhaps for some time before they lived in an apartment. At last, though, they found a place for sale. Maybe they had it built. They move in. There are things you can do with your own house you can't do in an apartment. There are things you can do when you're finally settled. There's there's a measure of permanence. We see that with Solomon's temple. So we continue in our Advent series, seeing the theme of a temple through Scripture. Now in the the previous Advent sermon, we focused on the tabernacle God told Moses to build while Israel camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Once Moses had assembled the tabernacle, the symbol of God's presence, the cloud, descended on the tabernacle, on the tent, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, consecrating it. Now Israel took that tabernacle with them the 40 years they traveled in the wilderness. They took it into the promised land and when they conquered the promised land, the tabernacle was still there. And it was still the place of worship up until what we read of this morning when Solomon finished building the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years. Think of that. It would be as though a a church today would worship at the same structure, a tent no less, that the pilgrims worshipped in when they came over. It's about the same time span, time difference. As the building of the tabernacle under Moses, we saw that was a, a great step forward in how God graciously relates with his people. So too the building of this temple. This event under Solomon marks another great step forward in God's gracious dealings. For with it, the holy God establishes his dwelling in the midst of his people. The holy God establishes his dwelling in the midst of his people. We see that with the temple. And first we consider this is a promised dwelling, a promised dwelling. Now the man who built this temple was King Solomon. He was the greatest king. In terms of wealth, in terms of wisdom, in terms of the the boundary of the nation of Israel. Solomon's father, children, you know who that was, King David, right? Well, he had gathered, he had stored all the material to be used in the building of this temple. And it was a great, it was a vast amount. These two kings were wealthy. And they used this wealth to build this temple. David had wanted to build it, we read of that. But God had forbidden him from doing it. God promised that his son, Solomon, would build the temple. This was a promised dwelling, and God keeps his promises. Now, God did not allow David to build the temple because David was a man of war. We find that out in 1 Chronicles 28. He had shed much blood. Now, his wars were just. They were just wars. They were in the service of the Lord and his people. But God did not want David, because of that reason, that warrior type of king, To build the house that was to be a house of prayer for all people. Instead, God promised David, your son, a man of peace. In fact, you look at what the name Solomon, what that gets at. It gets at peace. He would build this. As we read in verse 13, he did build it. Solomon said, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. It's a promised dwelling. Solomon organized thousands of men to cut and haul stones and timber to the temple site. God's promise didn't just happen out of the blue. But as is often the case, he uses events, uses people. He used Solomon. Solomon was active. Thousands of men were active. He oversaw the forming, the fashioning, the building of this structure as well as the furniture. God had promised that Solomon would build it. Solomon was diligent, by God's grace, to fulfill those responsibilities. And it was built. And not since the time of Moses had such a thing been accomplished. Had one man been used by God to bring about such a work in the worship of the church of God's people? God promised it would happen, now it was fulfilled. It is a step forward in that God selected one family to rule over Israel, to act as a representative of God, ruling over the church, even to oversee worship like this, where it worked, where it happened. Now with Moses and his work, God established one family to serve as priests, the the line of Aaron. Aaron. With David and Solomon's reigns, God established one family to serve as king, David's descendants. As God, through Moses, established one place where Israel was to worship God, so God, through David's descendant, David's son, established a new place where Israel was to worship God as long as the old covenant would last, the temple on Mount Zion. Now, when David expressed his desire to build a temple for God's worship, God commended him. We read that, didn't He? Verse 18, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. But then God also made a promise to David. Not just that Solomon would build it, but God would build a house for David, a dynasty. And through David's line, the Messiah would come. We didn't read it, 2 Samuel, but that promise is intertwined there. David talks about building a house, but God says, I will build a house And he points to the Messiah. Right there already, we catch a hint that this temple, this house, has a further temple in mind. Has the Messiah. God is promising. But we know, don't we, that as the years passed from Solomon, from David, David's line fell into shame, to poverty. Think ahead to the first Christmas day was not a descendant of David that sat on the throne in Israel. It was Herod. Had God's promise failed? Not much was left of David's line as far as we know, and and part of it that remained was, it appears, a a young girl in Nazareth, Mary. From all accounts, she was not from a well-to-do family. From all accounts, although she is highly favored, a model of, of female piety, she's not a woman of standing in her community, from what we can tell. And yet it was through the Virgin Mary, a descendant of David, that God is pleased to work, pleased to fulfill his promise. God's promise stands no matter what our earthly situation might be. Now as Solomon oversaw the details of the building of the temple, God was at work throughout the ages to bring to pass his promise of the Messiah. God directed the hearts of kings and princes, many others. Why? What do we read in Luke 2? But he even used pagan emperors to declare a tax. How could that further God's purposes? A pagan tax. But it did. God directed the hearts of kings and princes to bring his son into the world through the offspring of David, through Mary. Christmas Day marks a great shift, the greatest shift, one of the greatest shifts, steps forward. That a daughter of David gave birth to the Messiah, the one who is the son of David, yet also David's Lord. As with Solomon's temple, so with the birth of Christ, the Holy God establishes His dwelling in the midst of His people, and that is a promised dwelling. Now, congregation, it might appear to you, to me, from time to time, how are God's promises being fulfilled? Rest assured, He is fulfilling them. He fulfilled his promise with Solomon's building of the temple. He fulfilled his promise with the birth of Jesus. He is working out all his promises. Any promise you can find in Scripture, God is faithful to fulfill. Trust him. Trust him. It's a promise dwelling. But we also see, don't we, that it's... We consider in our second point, it's a magnificent dwelling. A magnificent dwelling. Solomon built a magnificent temple for God. We read in verse 13, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. It was built of the finest stone, the finest wood. It was overlaid with pure gold. It was seven years in the making. Which one of our construction projects last for 7 years. You'd think it's often getting behind schedule then. 7 years. It was constructed such that all of the stone was cut off site and it was brought to the location and assembled there so that there would be no sound of a workman's tool there on Mount Zion. The building was so grand that 450 years later, after it had been destroyed and then another temple began to be built in its place, those who were present at the dedication of the foundation of that temple, they wept from the memory of this temple. You can read of that in Ezra 3. This was a magnificent dwelling, rich, extravagant, the best of what man could offer, could produce, reflecting the greatness of the God of heaven. Who had taken for himself a people for his own possession, graciously chosen to establish his dwelling in our midst. Yes, God had established a king among the people, David, Solomon, their heirs. Yes, those kings would live in a palace, a grand palace, but the dwelling of God, from what we can tell, from what's recorded, is more magnificent. And at the buildings in and around Jerusalem, the temple of Jehovah would stand out as the greatest structure. Again, from what is recorded, there was no structure taller than the temple. No structure overlaid with gold in all its interior as the temple was. No structure that had two massive pillars outside of it, made of pure bronze, marking the entrance. And through many years, the pilgrims, they would would go up to Jerusalem, and from afar, they would see the temple. They would see those pillars and the sun shining off of it. In all of its earthly splendor, they could see that. A reminder, the holy God establishes his dwelling in the midst of his people. And Solomon made sure that this dwelling, this house was magnificent to mark it off that it is the house of God. Not the house of a mere man. Not even the king of Israel. And this brings out the significance of the magnificence of this temple. It brings to our mind the reverence. The reverence that the church, you and I still are to have toward God. God is a great king. He is worthy of the best that we can offer him. Think of the magi from the east. They came with some gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, certainly, God didn't need this gold. God didn't need this magnificence. But our giving of them, our presenting them to God, demonstrates our attitude toward God. You can tell a lot about what someone thinks of God by how they worship Him. You can tell who someone's gods are by whom they worship, whether in a sports stadium, not so much right now, huh? how they arrange their house, what guides their time, but also how they worship, how they dress for worship what they give in their offerings to God, how they pray to God, how they live as one who bears the name Christian. Now, young adults, we live in a society that scoffs at the holy. That's often dressed down, don't we? Now, if that's the best someone has, that's fine. If someone hasn't been trained in that, we understand that. We're not talking about those persons, but but those who have been blessed materially, Solomon. Those who have been raised in the covenant, Solomon. Who have been told of the glory of God. You and I have no excuse, do we? Many of us here. Give of your best. When you come to worship, dress accordingly. As you sit in worship, stand in worship, sing in worship, listen in worship, do so reverently. Demonstrate in all things that you serve the God who is most glorious. Again, yes, God looks at the heart. I'm not denying that. But there is also an outward component. We see that reflected throughout Scripture. And the temple Solomon built was a magnificent dwelling. But when we come to the one to whom this temple pointed, to Jesus, we're faced with a Almost an apparent dilemma. Because the word of God tells us Jesus had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah 53 tells us that. Solomon built a grand house, but, but Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Children, where was he born? He wasn't born in a king's palace. He wasn't born in the temple. He was born a stable. Gold lined the inside of Solomon's temple, but Jesus, he was born of a poor parents having very little to his name, and he was placed in swaddling claws and laid in a manger. God sent his son in very lowly conditions, not born in the palaces of kings, yet God was well pleased with Jesus, and that's because Jesus was Righteous. And he perfectly obeyed the will of God for him. You see, Solomon's splendor of his temple, our best clothes, they don't have any moral reality to them. They're just near pointers. And that's why, yes, we look at the heart. And that's what we're coming to here. Because you can have all the outward magnificence. But if there's no true faith, if there's no, in this case of our Savior, righteousness, then nothing else matters. God was well pleased with Jesus. He perfectly obeyed the will of God for him. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, don't we? Verse 5 sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You could add to that this temple. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. God prepared a temple, a body for Jesus. So that in the flesh, Christ might do what sinful man could never do. No matter how ornate the temple was. No matter how rich, no matter how wealthy, he obeyed God's will. We read from 1 Kings 8, verse 58. Solomon yearned that Israel, that God would incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways. To keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules. Solomon recognized that. The temple's magnificent and it ought to be. But here's the heart of it. And not even David, we know not even Solomon, not even the Virgin Mary perfectly kept God's law as they were supposed to. Congregation, you and I don't do that. We sin. And that's our problem. Not that we don't build buildings magnificent enough. Ultimately, it's here. It's in my heart, it's in your heart. It's sin. And God is angry with sinners. Thanks be to God, Jesus obeyed. There is part of the beauty and magnificence of the Christ. Even though he was a babe born in a stable having little earthly riches, his soul was unstained by sin. Untainted by any hint of rebellion Mars makes ours ugly. He had a righteous life presented unto God as a fragrant offering. The precious blood of the righteous Christ poured out to pay for sin. And you couldn't detect that with earthly eyes looking at the Christ child on Christmas Day. Seen with earthly eyes who would believe this was the Christ. He didn't appear to be a king wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger yet That is what this Christ child is. He is king. He is king of kings. He's the most magnificent and glorious of all kings. A greater than Solomon has come. And Jesus did not appear himself to be a temple at all, did he? Yet he is, for there dwelt God the Son himself among us, Emmanuel. However, on that first Christmas day, there was one item. That could be seen with earthly eyes. In which the celebration of this true temple, the birth of Christ, was more majestic than anything in history. Certainly Solomon's time. And that was the angel chorus. We, read of, we sang of that in the song just before the sermon. Now we're told in 2 Chronicles 5 that when the temple was dedicated, there was a, a choir of Levites. Not all Israel, but the Levites. And they sang praise. But at the occasion of the birth of Christ, God sent a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. We didn't, again, read it this morning, but we sang it. And that account from Luke 2 is familiar to many. The angels gave testimony that the child lying in that humble manger is more magnificent than Solomon's temple. The angel said he is Christ the Lord. And the holy God establishes his dwelling with his people. He has done that with Jesus. He is God with us. Solomon's temple, it was a magnificent dwelling. How much more Jesus is, though not to earthly eyes, but he is the Son of God. Magnificent dwelling. But this points to, as we move to in our third point, an enduring dwelling. An enduring dwelling, So Solomon built the temple out of materials that endure, stone, cypress, wood, gold. The enduring character of the earthly materials spoke of the enduring place that would be for worshiping God. Again, verse 13, Solomon said, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The word Solomon uses there for place, it's more than simply a location. It has the sense of being fixed, established. This would be God's place perpetually. He wouldn't change it again. The tabernacle that that Moses built it moved around from place to place as Israel journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. Once in the promised land, we don't know for sure if it moved around or if it stayed in one place. We know the ark moved around. We're not sure. We're not told about the tabernacle. But here it's clear. You're not moving this house. You're not moving this temple. It's established. It endures. And with God's choosing David's line as the family through whom he would select kings over his people, God established that. And Solomon built a house. He established it. All these are enduring We know in the New Testament, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritans were wrong for worshiping where they worshiped. It was the temple in Jerusalem they were to worship at. But Solomon knew from faith too, though, that this temple was not ultimately the hope of Israel. His words, we read just some of them, show he knew God would not choose a different kingly line, a different city, that God said his name in Jerusalem, but there's always more. It's enduring, but he's looking for something more. But this is it for now, Israel, Old Covenant Church. The significance of this enduring, that this permanence, in one sense, the old covenant, in the old covenant, it has that God gave rest to Israel. Remember the time of the judges? No rest. Enemies would come, they would conquer, they would sweep over the land. 40 years, then they might have rest from one judge, and they'd go back, God would raise up more. With David and Solomon, God brought rest, peace from enemies. And Israel would look back on this time as a golden age. And the temple in Jerusalem stood as a fixed point, testifying the flood of enemies that had come and gone over Israel before. That was over. This is stability. This endures. And that enduring character of Solomon's temple pointed ahead to Christ. The earthly rest of the promised land looked ahead to the the true rest Christ gives to his people, that of heaven itself, not simply freedom from earthly enemies, but freedom from sin, Satan, death. Even under great persecution, earthly persecution, believer in Jesus, you rest secure because Christ is your righteousness. You have a home eternal in the heavens. It doesn't matter what goes on in our country. It doesn't matter what nations are put into upheaval. Your home is in heaven, never to be changed, never to be shaken. This enduring dwelling Solomon built as the temple of God's worship was established as an earthly building of that time could be. It couldn't be any more than that, that rock, that stone. But we know even his temple did not endure forever. In 586 B.C., Babylon came because of Israel's sin. And there's that connection to righteousness and sin. Because of Israel's sin, God sent Babylon and they exiled the church and he destroyed the temple. And Solomon's place of worship that he built, from what we can gather, was the place of worship for fewer years than the tabernacle Moses established. In congregation, that reminds us everything of this earth is passing away. Children, your toys are passing away. Young people, your video games, your cars, your movies, they're passing away. Adults, your house, your business, your earthly ties. They're all passing away. All the gifts we give and receive around Christmas time. They're passing away. Yet how often we hold tightly to them, don't we? How often maybe children, we're greedy for them, aren't we? How often we're tempted to go against God's clear command in Scripture simply so we can hold on to these things a little, little while longer. By God's grace, don't. Even if something was sanctioned by God, blessed by God, as the temple was, it's still passing away. We need something more solid than the things of this life, this world, this age. That brings us to our last point. Like all things in this life, so with the temple of Solomon. They're insufficient. We need something more. This is our fourth point in insufficient dwelling. Now God, the Holy God, establishes His dwelling with His people. But even the magnificent of the temple of Solomon was not enough, was not the truth. Was not the ultimate goal of what God had in mind for dwelling in the midst of his people. Because even Solomon himself said, verse 12, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. Then he goes on to talk about this house he built. There's there's even there a contrast. We think too about God dwelling in the midst. Now, A house is where people dwell. A house shows more permanence than a tent. But it's one thing to move into a house, and it's an altogether different thing, a greater thing, to join yourself to that community, to take the identity of the community to yourself. Think of people who move from place to place for jobs. They might live in a house within a community, But they're not joined to that community. They're not knit to it, are they? They're not bound to it. They don't identify with that. They move on. And that shows, too, how insufficient the temple dwelling of Solomon was with God's dwelling with us. God was not bound to the temple. And even though they tried, the Jews could not use the temple as some sort of lever, leverage with God to coerce him, to act in their defense. Later they would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It can't be destroyed. It would be. But ultimately, God could care less about that structure. Again, what do we read in Hebrews 10? God does not desire sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. He demands righteousness and holiness. And sinful man can't supply that. A temple built by sinful man can't supply it. But a time would come when God Himself would supply it. When He would take upon Himself our flesh, our human nature. And His identifying with His people would not be simply establishing a dwelling place, putting His name there. That was great. Again, a great step forward. But He still remained apart, didn't He? But in the person of Jesus, God took upon himself our very nature, human nature. He identified with us, like us in every way except for sin. He submitted to the same political, religious laws under which his people lived. He took upon himself a real human life with all its struggles, its its disappointments, its trials. Do you have a trial? Christ had trials like yours, like mine. But even more, throughout his life on earth, but especially 30 years or so after his birth, he would identify even deeper with us by taking upon himself the fullness of our guilt and he submitted his blessed body to be broken. His precious blood to be poured out. We celebrated that last week, didn't we? Communion. He bore God's wrath against our sin as he suffered on the tree to satisfy God's justice, to remove his wrath from us, to provide the righteousness we could not provide, but we needed to provide in order to be delivered from condemnation and death, to give us life. And herein lies the significance of Solomon's temple, the symbol of God's presence within Solomon's temple That was not enough. That did not last. It was meant to make clear the church needed something more. God's blessing of the temple, their use of the temple and the sacrifices. They needed a Messiah. They needed someone to take upon himself our nature. To reconcile us to God, which we receive through faith. And Christmas is when this Messiah was born. Jesus, who is God and man. With Jesus, it's not the rebirth of David or Salmon, but it's the birth of someone who is David's Lord. And Jesus lived a life adorned not with gold, but adorned with righteousness, holiness, by which he removes our sin against God and grants us what's needed more than silver or gold, righteousness and eternal life. Think of that, children, as Christmas approaches. Those gifts, perhaps you have a Christmas tree, maybe not. Maybe your family gives gifts at this time, maybe not. But you need more than those gifts. I need more than that. You need more than some eggnog and some nice music playing and some lights showing. Those are all nice. But we need a Savior. And Christmas is when that Savior has come. Who brings us close to God who intercedes for us with God. The Savior who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now Christmas continues to be celebrated year after year. True Christian doctrine doesn't change. It always remains true. It marks that Christ is the only Savior from sin. The only one who gives eternal life. And you and I are called to turn away from grasping so firmly to this life. We're called away from grasping so firmly to ourselves and our sin to turn unto Jesus in faith, to find in him magnificence, true righteousness, holiness, eternal life. That all who believe, believer, you're forgiven. You have something that the wealthiest person on earth doesn't have who's an unbeliever. You have God for your father. Father. You have eternal life. Looking with earthly eyes at Solomon's temple, one would expect great things, but in the end be disappointed. Looking with earthly eyes at the Christ child in the manger, one would not expect great things. But for those who entrust themselves to Jesus, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. God has made this Jesus to be both Lord and Christ forever. Don't long for earthly show, earthly magnificence. Long for what really lasts, even though it might not appear in the eyes of the world to be so great. In Christ is salvation. Is all we need. The Holy God establishes His dwelling in the midst of His people, trusting in God. Praise Him. For the Savior, praise Him for His great grace. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is fitting that we give an outward show in how we act and talk and our demeanor, and our dress, to give evidence in that way of reverence toward You. But we realize we can't stop there. But, Lord, we need a heart that's made new. We need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ constantly. We need to have your Spirit dwell within us. And we thank you that we come to you, yes, clothed, but clothed in Christ's righteousness. We thank you for working in our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of our unbelieving neighbors and family members and coworkers. It would give us opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. To point them away from the things of this life that pass away. To show where there's meaning. where There's true blessedness. May we not lose sight of that in this season or any season. May we not take the good gifts you have given and be distracted from you, the giver. But thank you, Lord, for dwelling in our midst. Thank you for Jesus.